to the Borderline Podcast, a podcast for the discussion of immigration, citizenship, and refugee issues. I'm Steve Murins, joined today as usual with uh, Peter Edelman and Diana Okanachoff. And we're also joined today by Gordon Maynard, who's an immigration lawyer with over 20 years' experience in Vancouver. And Gordon is uh, recognized probably nationally, nationally amongst immigration lawyers as being one of the experts in defending allegations by the Canadian government that someone has committed misrepresentation in an immigration application. And that expertise will feed perfectly into today's conversation, which is about the Sunny Wang New Can investigations and what is, I think, the largest, at least recently, immigration fraud in Vancouver's history. There's similar cases going on out east, but the focus that we're going to talk about today is the Sunny Wang uh, New Can consultants and the events that transpired and what's currently going on. So maybe, uh, Gord, we can turn it over to you with, I think you're defending several of the individuals or his former clients, and maybe you can just uh, A, introduce yourself a little bit, but also provide an overview of who was or who is Sunny Wang and what was NUCAN Consulting. Oh, thank you, Steve. And, uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in the podcast. I'll, I'll start by talking about Sunny Wang. Uh, he's a fellow who was active in the immigration consulting field uh, for about 10 or 15 years. He started roughly in about 2000. He operated two companies, uh, New Can Consulting Limited and Wawang Financial Investments LTD. Those were incorporated in 2002, 2004, and were active up until about 2014. Uh, now, Sunny Wang was very, very successful. He was successful because he was a crook, a crook and a fraud artist. His specialty was representing clients who needed to show that they lived in Canada. This would be for the purposes of citizenship applications, where you have to be a permanent resident who's lived in Canada for three years out of the past four, or four years out of the past six, depending upon which law you're using, or representing permanent residents who had to show that they had been residing in Canada for two years out of five. Normally, when you make these applications to immigration, you submit your passports and you demonstrate that you've been in Canada. You show you've been going to school, you show you've been working. Sonny Wong represented many applicants who had not been living in Canada. And he did it by making applications that misrepresented how much time they had actually been spending in Canada. And he did it mainly by counterfeit passports. Counterfeit passports, counterfeit employment records. He was an expert at it. And this had not been done on such a scale. So how many individuals uh, did he represent or are alleged to have committed fraud through his services? Uh, so far, uh, Canada Border Services Agency, who's the investigating agency in this matter, have identified about 1,700 files uh, where they believe fraud was committed. There's another 500 applications being looked at. Uh, so likely there's probably going to be about 2,000 files ultimately brought forward for questioning as to whether these individuals committed fraud in their applications. And you talked about the fact that a lot of these involve fake passports or fake passport stamps. One thing that I think uh, some of our listeners may not know is that the Canadian government tracks entries to Canada, but it doesn't track exits. So in discussing this issue, as, and as we go forward, it's important to keep that in mind as to why the stamps and residency uh, declarations are so important in all of this and how this issue can even arise, is that because we don't track exits, or Canada doesn't track exits, but also requires that permanent residents spend a certain amount of time in Canada, the onus is on the permanent resident to provide documentation to show when they were in Canada and when they left Canada and the Canadian government to a degree has to take them at their word. So going back to uh, Sunny Wang, how did this all eventually come to light? Like you mentioned that he had been uh, representing people. And before I forget, I should mention, I know there's a lot of immigration consultants who listen to the podcast and I would be remiss to not point out that uh, he was not a licensed consultant. Uh, but anyway, how many, uh, how did this all come to light? 
that the Canada Border Services Agency or the Canadian government discovered what was going on. My understanding is that he was a licensed consultant at one point, but lost his license because he didn't pass one of the exams. I, I believe. Oh, okay. He let his membership lapse at some point. Yeah, Why but there was a point where he was, a, where he was oh, okay. a licensed consultant, and he had other licensed consultants working with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, it's important to note that Sonny Wong, when, normally when people are represented by a consultant or by a lawyer, the lawyer puts themselves forward on the application. They put in a piece of paper saying, I am the authorized representative of this individual. Sonny Wong didn't do that. He was what you would call a ghost consultant. So he would assist people with their applications, but his name would never show up on them, which was probably a cautious point on his part, given what he was doing. Uh, but what immigration noticed was that there were certain addresses showing up. Keep in mind here that, that the kinds of clients that Sonny Wong was representing were individuals who simply weren't living in Canada. They didn't have a regular habitation here, they didn't have a residence, they didn't have employment here. They were living abroad and they wanted to misrepresent that they were in Canada. So they needed an address. He had addresses. He had addresses of homes that either he owned or which were related to friends of his and he would use those addresses as their mailing addresses and as their place of residence. If people didn't have a job in Canada, he would fabricate a job for them. So there were certain companies that kept showing up in these applications. So what immigration started to notice through, well, I think around 2010 and onwards, were the certain addresses, in, particularly in Alberta, in Edmonton, and in Calgary, were showing up with different people claiming this was their address of residence. And that's the beauty of our computer age, is that when you start putting this data into the system, it starts to filter out these inconsistencies in the applications. And so they somehow whittled down that these were applications involving a particular company. And they started to follow Sonny Wong, and they started to look at what he was doing. He was put under surveillance. Ultimately, in 2012, they obtained a warrant, and they searched his business office in Richmond and in Vancouver. They seized his files. And that's where the real investigation took off. That's where they began to see how he was doing what he was doing. So perhaps you can explain a little bit like on the subject of ghost consulting, just um, the, the, the basics of what constitutes a misrepresentation to explain um, why this, this falls on the applicants as opposed to on the consultant. Well, misrepresentation is when you tell a fib. When you tell a fib to immigration in an application. Some people apply for immigration to Canada. They apply for permanent resident status. They're going to have to talk about what their education is, what their work experience is, where they've had any criminal record, and who their family members are. That's all material information, and you're expected to tell the truth about it. If you come to the border and seek entry into Canada, that's making an application. You tell a border officer, I'm coming into Canada, I'm going to go play a game of golf. If you're not coming in for a game of golf, if you're coming in to do work in Canada, you've made a misrepresentation. Misrepresentations are a reason for immigration to turn down your application, and they are reasons to punish the individual. If you're guilty of misrepresentation in an application, you can be denied entry to Canada for five years, and you can be pursued with charges if it's a serious misrepresentation. Now, in the past, misrepresentation was usually something committed by an individual. They would forget to tell immigration about their old criminal record. They would forget to tell immigration that 10 years ago they applied for a visa and got turned down. They didn't want to mention it because they thought it would reflect badly upon them. But in recent years, we have seen cases involving misrepresentation by an agent, misrepresentation by the consultant, or even by the lawyer that represented the individual. And sometimes this was done without the individual's knowledge. And so there's a line of law developed that says when you put in an application, if you have an agent who's representing you and they make a misrepresentation in your documentation, you have to wear it. So when they found that Sonny Wong had been committing misrepresentation on behalf of so many clients, not only was Sonny Wong guilty of misrepresentation, so was each individual client. And just uh, finishing up on Sonny Wang, the person uh, where is he now? Sonny Wong is in jail. He was sentenced in 2014 to seven years in prison.
And I think most of his staff have also been charged with different offenses as well. And those of his staff who weren't or aren't Canadian citizens, uh, the Canadian government is pursuing deportation against them for having been involved in organized crime under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. So this, as far as misrepresentations by an agent goes, uh, is probably one of the most serious in Canadian history. I can't think of any other individuals who've received as long sentences uh, under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act from misrepresentation. Yep, absolutely. And, and the amount of money involved was staggering as well. Uh, it's estimated that he took in $10 million in fees from his clients over the course of his business operations in that decade period. Yeah. Well, and the materials in the, like when you actually look at the materials on this case, they're actually not subtle at all in terms of the records that they were keeping. Um, I know that they had Excel spreadsheets, for example, where there was one tab for real dates and one tab for fake dates. Um, the the uh, price sheets that they had in the, um, for legitimate applications, so a legitimate citizenship application would be something like $400 to prepare. And if you wanted a fraudulent citizenship application, it would be $4,000 or, or $5,000. So there were different prices depending on whether or not you were doing legitimate or, or fraudulent applications. And, you know, crime is, uh, can be very lucrative uh, until you get caught. The, um, uh, in terms of the charges, I think that there were four uh, there were four of the employees that were charged, one of which is not, uh, I think, has fled and is in, in China, and then two of the employees and, and uh, Sunny Wang, I believe, is, is the people who are actually prosecuted, um, although a number of the other employees, as, as Steve said, I think are being pursued uh, under Section 37 for organized criminality. Um, in terms of the, uh, um, the law, just coming back to the law around misrepresentation, and I think that one of the, one of the examples that we often see in, in New Canon and in a number of other cases are the people who sign blank forms and give them to their, uh, give them to their representative. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the fairness of that, especially when we're dealing with, and, and I think in this case, um, whether or not people understood what Sonny Wang was doing or what his, uh, his status was. But let's take the example of a registered consultant or uh, a lawyer uh, who's duly registered with the Law Society. And when, I'm, when I go in and sign the forms and the, the consultant tells me, please sign your forms, and I give them a set of blank forms, um, why... Why, or can you just explain that the reasoning around the law for that as to why you'd be responsible uh, if the, the consultant then goes off and puts a bunch of lies or, or, or admits things on that application that you, told the, that you told the consultant about? You know, before he, I think, before we get into the big details on the different types of misrep, I'll read quickly, just to wrap up the facts and the history of the case, one of the types of letters that people receive, which just sets out the background. And then if you want to keep that question in mind, that can be our first question on, well, now we're into the misrepresentation. What are some of the defenses and how does misrepresentation work? But just to get the facts out of the way, uh, as part of the procedures of this, whenever somebody is being, it seems like, and the CBSA has something called Project NUCAN, under Project NUCAN, they'll send people who are suspected of misrepresentation a procedural fairness letter, or what's called A44-1 highlights, which contain a brief summary of what went on. And I'll just read it here, and then we can get right back to uh, Peter's question. So in this case, and they all contain standard similar language, uh, it reads, the CBSA criminal investigation section has been investigating a large-scale immigration fraud file involving Canadian citizen Shun Sunny Wang and his companies including NUCAN Consultants Limited and Wello International Investments Limited. This investigation led to the execution of several search warrants on October 17, 2012. On October 15, 2014, Mr. Wong was formally charged with 15 offenses related to immigration and tax fraud. The CIS alleged that Mr. Wong engaged in misrepresentation and counseling misrepresentation to enable as many clients to achieve or maintain Canadian permanent resident status and or Canadian citizenship. The CIS believes that the majorities of these clients were aware of such misrepresentation and paid large amounts of money to Mr. Wong and his companies for these illegal services. 
Mr. Wong pled guilty to eight of the charges and was convicted and received a seven-year jail sentence and a $900,000 fine. So then in this case, this individual uh, who received this fairness letter became a permanent resident of Canada on such and such date under the immigrant investor class. His name was found at the ghost consultant's office, New Can Wellome. During the execution of the search warrants at New Can Wellome's offices, a copy of three spreadsheets in this individual's name detailing his travel history and a spreadsheet showing that the individual paid $10,000 for a permanent resident card application was found. The three separate spreadsheets that were located have absences totaling X number of days absent from Canada. The spreadsheets are consistent with other spreadsheets found where the travel history is adjusted to make it appear that the person was residing in Canada. Currently, we have enough evidence to support pursuing this individual for misrepresentation. And then on such a such date, this person's passport was seized um, and then it provides a brief outline of the law. So that's the type, I think, as you mentioned, they all, Mr. Wang or Sonny Wang, kept very meticulous records, often photocopied, and in some cases had real stamps, fake stamps, subfolders. So going to, uh, back to Peter's question, in such a case, when you come across individuals, uh, let's start with, you know, does, does it or should it matter whether the individual knew what Sunny Wine was doing. It should matter. It should matter. But will it matter? That's a different answer. It should matter because the consequences of misrepresentation are you're going to lose your status, you're going to be barred from Canada. It's a final decision for something that you may not have known was happening. The problem is, the problem is that there's very little wiggle room. For clients who say, I didn't know, I hired Sonny Wong to do an application for me. I didn't know he was going to fabricate stamps in my passport. I didn't ask for that. When these cases come before an adjudicator, if the adjudicator and if CBSA has to establish that the person was proven to have known, before they can find them guilty of misrepresentation. That puts a pretty high standard upon them. It's damn inconvenient to them. So there's a certain convenience in saying that if you hire a consultant and that consultant commits fraud, you have to wear it. That we don't have to prove that you knew about it. In coming to this, this, this strategy for, for handing over the responsibility for misrepresentation to the individual, and not just to the agent, the court has made comments such as, if you sign an application that is blank, then you are being willfully blind and reckless to the possibility of misrepresentation. If you don't review the application that got sent in, you are being reckless as to the possibility of misrepresentation. And so these are the excuses that are used to not allow people to wiggle out of their responsibility. Now, I say that it should matter because I have dealt with clients who I believe were innocent of misrepresentation. They had a good application for PR card renewal. They had a reason why they were outside of Canada. They provided that information to Sonny Wong and his company, and they were told that the application would be made on that basis. The application was made, and there was fraud involved, and they didn't know it. They never got their passports back. They were told that the passports were handed off in a citizenship application. Uh, they never saw the application, but they trusted Sonny Wong, because they told that lawyers were doing the application. But in the end, they were pinned with the misrepresentation, and their excuses were not enough to, to evade that consequence. And I think that that is unfortunate, but I understand why it is that. I just think that it's unfortunate because I think there are cases where people are misled. And, uh, perhaps we can, uh, this would be a good time just to talk a little bit about where the discretion happens in the immigration system. So in terms of the process, um, do you want to just explain the process? Uh, perhaps we can start with uh, a foreign national 
then maybe we can deal with a permanent resident and a citizen in terms of the process, because uh, there's three different processes for each one. Uh, maybe we can start with a foreign national. What, so when we're talking about a foreign national, this is somebody who's not a permanent resident and is not a citizen. Um, what's the process for them in terms of uh, potentially losing their status if there is an indication of misrepresentation in their file. If you're starting with the foreign national who's overseas and making an application, they don't have any status in Canada, they're applying for it. They make an application overseas for a visitor visa or for an immigration visa, and they make a misrepresentation in the application. The overseas visa officer, if they catch that misrepresentation and they refuse the application on the grounds of misrepresentation, that's the determination that you've committed misrepresentation and you are going to have the consequences of it. You are inadmissible for a number of years. For somebody in Canada who is already here as a worker, as a permanent resident, they are going to get pinned inside Canada. They're going to get a report made against them. They're going to be reported and have to go to a hearing at the immigration division within Canada. There, the CBSA officers who are bringing the allegation of misrepresentation have to show that there was a misrepresentation. Now, it doesn't matter whether you've been in Canada for 10 years or 20 years, whether you're a permanent resident or a student, it doesn't matter. If there's a misrepresentation, if there's a material fact in the application that was wrong, that is a misrepresentation and the determination is made. If you're a foreign national, that's the end of the matter. You are given a removal order and you lost your status. You can go to federal court and try and challenge it, but that's a pretty tall order. It's not going to happen very often, if at all. On the other hand, if you are a permanent resident of Canada, somebody who's been admitted here as an immigrant, you have a level of appeal against that removal order. And that appeal is taken to the Immigration Appeal Division, where you can make an appeal on law, that is fact of law, or on equitable grounds. So in the Appeal Division, it's open for you to say, Yes, you're right, there was misrepresentation, but I believe that in all the circumstances of the case, you should let me remain in Canada. I should be allowed to retain my status based on whatever circumstances you think are relevant to that consideration. And it can be that I didn't know there was going to be misrepresentation committed. I was, I was gullible. I believed that they were making a proper application. It wasn't my wish to commit misrepresentation. Or you can argue that I'm, in consideration of the amount of years I've been here, my family is here, my employment is here, there's hardship if I'm removed. And the adjudicator in the appeal division can take all those matters into account and decide whether or not you should actually lose your status, whether or not there was actual misrepresentation. Before we distinguish, though, between the, the legal definition that happens at the Immigration Division and the equitable jurisdiction that gets added, maybe a few words on the, the issue of the materiality of the misrepresentation as well. Um, does every single error cause a determination of misrepresentation, or what's the test there exactly? Well, it's a pretty funny test. Uh, it has to be a factual misrepresentation, uh, an error of fact that is material to the application. It's not necessary to say that, that it would have caused an error in the application. It doesn't have to be determinative of the application, but it just has to be relevant to the application. And so almost anything going to identity is material. Anything going to your, your uh, history of criminality is going to be material. Anything going to your family membership is going to be material. Uh, it, it, you know, if it's the color of your eyes, probably not, you know, but if it's your age, yeah, because this is relevant to doing a, a search for criminal records, for instance. So it's quite a number of, of areas where you can commit misrepresentation. For the most part, it's going to be in pretty obvious matters, though. It's going to be things like, in a PR card application, I didn't properly represent the number of days I'd been in Canada. Or in an immigration application, I forgot to tell you that I had a criminal conviction when I was 20 years old. Or it's going to be, I misrepresented the number of kids I have. These are all relevant facts. So then while a foreign national would need to establish either that there was no misrepresentation or that the misrepresentation was not material, that's all that they can argue, whereas the, the permanent resident also has the equitable jurisdiction where they can argue. The that's right. That's right. And I should say that there is a very, very, very small window where the courts have recognized that somebody can make 
an innocent misrepresentation. But that's extremely rare. And uh, furthering on what constitutes misrepresentation, you mentioned that somebody forgetting to uh, disclose that they had a criminal record or a criminal conviction from when they were 20, uh, that constitutes misrepresentation. What if they were never asked? Can, is misrepresentation, can it be done through omission? Yes, it certainly can. Um, there are probably four ways of committing misrepresentation. The most obvious one is when you're asked a question and you even answer it as false. But it also includes omissions even when you're not asked the question. So, for instance, and, and this, is a, this is a developing area of the law, if you know that you have a criminal conviction in your past, and if you know that that conviction is relevant to your ability to enter Canada, you have an obligation to disclose it at the border. And if you don't disclose it, you've committed a misrepresentation. But you have to know that it's relevant. If you don't know that it's relevant, then you get one free pass. Right? You weren't asked, you didn't know, so be it. But once you know it's relevant, then you're obliged to disclose it. And that's a very context-specific, uh, I mean, I, one of the cases that we dealt with a few years ago was where uh, uh, my client had come in at the port of entry in her car, and uh, her boyfriend was following behind in another car with uh, many of her worldly possessions, uh, which was found to be a misrepresentation, um, not because she didn't spontaneously disclose that, that she was bringing in all these other things with her, and the court upheld that finding. Um, so we'll... It, Often the, the duty, what's, what's referred to as the duty of candor, is a very context-specific uh, and uh, provides a lot of um, flexibility to officers to decide what they think you ought to have told them, um, which is why my general advice to clients is to disclose and explain rather than uh, decide for yourself what may or may not be relevant, given the scope with, res with respect to uh, what often gets decided as being potentially material um, there is a balancing there, though, always, because if anyone, I mean, one of the issues on determination um, of eligibility to be admitted is criminality, for example, and it can be criminality on the basis of the commission of a foreign offense, even when there was no conviction. So I think that's the difficulty in terms of advising somebody coming into Canada, is at what point do they need to literally... Tell, give a listing of every time they might have uh, run afoul of the law in their country of, of citizenship or where they were residing. It's a, it's a tricky question. Well, I have uh, an outstanding challenge to any CBSA officer or to any minister um, that uh, 20 questions to get to an indictable offense if you answer my questions truthfully. And I have yet to meet somebody who gets past the first five. So uh, <laughs> if anybody out there wants to take the challenge, um, please feel free in terms of committing an offense. Uh, but uh, once we get past taxes, drugs, and assaults, uh, that's, you know, very few people get past those three questions. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to take up that challenge with anybody who wants to try it. <laughs> so when somebody, like, let's say that... Uh, in the context where an immigration officer has determined that somebody may have committed misrepresentation and it is a temporary resident who can't go to equitable factors, uh, what would you generally recommend them at that point? Do you just say, throw in the towel, it's done, uh, they've caught you on something, or do you still, are there, even for foreign nationals, things that they may be able to do to explain it, um, or is it at that point They've spotted, say, a job that might not match, uh, somebody being detained that wasn't disclosed. Um, is it the case, though, that even though they can't consider equitable, dis equitable factors at that point, that the application, that's it, they're going to be banned from Canada for the five years? No, and there, there is going to be some flexibility amongst enforcement officers. And, and so there should be. You've got to pick and choose your cases. Uh, it, Immigration and CBSA recognize that there can be uh, mistaken misrepresentations, um, non-malicious misrepresentations, misrepresentation of facts that aren't particularly material, that might be technically material, but not very much so. And so why go after those? 
those cases. Uh, you got to pick and choose your fights. So immigration and, and CBSA does have some discretion. They should use it, and, and they do use it. And I think one of the things that we, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this as well, is that at the front end with permanent residents and with citizens before there's, when there's, they're considering reporting somebody for misrepresentation, you'll have an opportunity to make submissions at the year before they report you under Section 44 of the Act, they'll give you a fairness letter, giving you an opportunity to make submissions. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that process and, and what sure. that looks like uh, for, for clients? What it looks like is a two-page letter and an attachment that, that <laughs> says that they have information leading them to believe that you've committed, a, let's say, a misrepresentation, and they invite you to make responses as to why they should not enforce against you. And those responses can be on the issue of the misrepresentation itself, or it could be in the surrounding circumstances, or your particular circumstances. But they're inviting you to come forward with information and considerations and uh, help them decide whether or not they want to actually proceed with enforcement against you. Uh, you know, there are some cases where it makes perfect sense to make those representations and perfect sense for CBSA to back away. Just because in all the circumstances it's not an important case to go after or the person themselves is a victim, etc. Uh, in other cases, no amount of pleading is going to change their mind. Uh, they're going to head to enforcement because misrepresentation was committed. And I suppose there's a range of gray area in between. It's a hard line to, to define sometimes. And we should say maybe also that while a temporary resident won't have the right to argue humanitarian and compassionate factors in front of the board. If they're responding to a fairness letter, that's the opportunity to try and engage that equitable jurisdiction because they could at that. Yeah, except in my experience, uh, foreign nationals will not be given a fairness letter. You have a very small window. I, I have been successful in making those types of submissions, but it's really a question of begging the officer to put it off until you can, I have this important information you should know, I'll get it to you within 24 hours. Here it is. Um, once they've written you up, try to, you, you're then trying to convince them to uh, drop or undo the uh, the 44 report. But it's not um, the process in terms of, of what's set out for a foreign national. I've seen it quite a bit, actually. So it's just maybe a different type of case. But I've certainly had many cases where I've been responding to fairness letters for temporary residents. Oh, on applications? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm talking about inland uh, um, Somebody who's inland and who's being investigated um, will not have the right to a fairness letter. So, in other words, when right. I, I, I guess we deal with different clientele. Yes. My my clientele who will be or, or some of my clientele are people who are inland and they're just investigating you for misrepresentation on a past application. Mm -hmm. You won't get a fairness letter. What you will get is a report. Yeah, uh, agreed. And, no, uh, or or CBSA will show up at your door. Uh, and, and pull you in. But when, when we're dealing with applications, you, you, will, you will definitely get that fairness letter, um, usually with respect to the application that's in front of them, in, in my experience. But they may, they may in, in terms of have information about previous applications. So just uh, to provide maybe an overview of these processes. So typically, if someone's inland, and I'll just do permanent residence um, and make note that for foreign nationals, it stops at the division. So in the case of, say, the Sunny Wang permanent residence, step one would be the Canada Border Services Agency sends, in most cases, this procedural fairness letter, which says, we believe you've committed misrepresentation, provide us with, uh, and they'll actually ask for humanitarian and compassionate considerations at that point, uh, or evidence that no misrepresentation occurred. If the individual is not successful at that point, the Canada Border Services Agency, under Section 44 of the Act that Peter mentioned earlier, will refer that person to the board, the Immigration and Refugee Board. Step one would be the Immigration Division. At that point, the Immigration Division is only looking at whether a misrepresentation occurred. They do not look at that point on any other factors. If the Immigration Division determines that a permanent resident or foreign national committed misrepresentation, then in the case of the permanent resident, they can appeal that to the Immigration Appeal Division, and that's where the humanitarian and compassionate considerations will again be considered. So uh, Gord or Peter, I think all our firms have dealt with a lot of the uh, NUCAN files. 
if somebody is coming to you at the, well, at any stage, the CBSA stage or the Immigration Appeal Division stage, and they say, there were fake passports in my stamp, and yes, I'm... <laughs> fake stamps in my passport. Or fake, uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> fake passports. Fake stamps in my passport, and um, I may have known about them. What possible reasons could there be that the person wouldn't be removed from Canada for misrepresentation? Like, what are some of these humanitarian and compassionate factors that could override it? Because I think a lot of people would hear, well, what's there to consider at this point? Fake passport stamps, deport them. So what are, what are examples of humanitarian and compassionate considerations? Well, I'm happy to hang out that laundry list of considerations, but I think it has to be said, and maybe I'm cynical here, but in the context of the Jun Wang cases, I think it's going to take an extraordinary set of circumstances before an appeal division is going to say, we're going to let you stay. Uh, we haven't seen a case yet like that. Uh, there haven't been very many cases yet passed through the board. But the context of Jin Wang is that everybody's out for blood on this. They want to see people come out to try. I mean, I would provide a little bit of context with respect to that, and that is that there is triage happening at the front end. And so we've, we've had cases um, when we engaged, because we engaged in these cases very, very early when this was still at the, the, at the criminal investigation stage. And when we learned that our clients were involved um, with respect to some clients with the, and informing them about the risks of doing that, um, they went in and cooperated with the CBSA criminal investigation which allowed them to distance themselves from Mr. Wong um, and, and demonstrate going forward. Um, in, in situations where, uh, where I've seen them not proceed have been in situations where, um, one, there's a very clear indication of remorse or of understanding of, of the, the mistakes that were made, whether the mistake was trusting Mr. Wong or whether the mistake was uh, actually engaging in misrepresentation. If there's some form of establishment or children um, here, but we, we had one example where Mr. Wong engaged in a misrepresentation on a case. The citizenship application was filed two months early. So the client would have been eligible for citizenship two months later. But Mr. Wong put fake stamps in the, in the woman's passport so that the, the application could be filed two months faster. And it was just a really stupid fraud. It was, it was, there was no reason for it. It was, and then advised her that she had to lie on the permanent residence application that was subsequent, the permanent resident card renewal application that was made subsequently because the lies had gone in on the citizenship application. Um, you know, when you're dealing with a relatively naive person and, and whatnot. So in, in some cases, uh, I, I think there's, there's, um, there's a broad spectrum of people in terms of how involved they were. Some of these people were very clearly, fully, knowingly, hadn't been in Canada at all. And I'm talking we're about cases full, where, where right. Steve says he was aware of the stamps that were fraudulent in the passport. Yeah. You take a case where somebody's been outside of Canada virtually for the entire time of their five-year permanent resident record. They've been in Canada for maybe 100 days over that time. And they have stamps put in their passport, numerous, that fraudulently say that they're here, claim employment here, claim a residence here. The person knows darn well that all of this is fraudulent. Now, what circumstances would you say would justify the tribunal saying, you know what, we're going to let this pass? I would say that one of the main factors would be timing. And so if we're talking about the 2007 fraud, and there's been significant change in circumstances over the past 10 years, they've got three kids here, they're, they're well established, they're going to church or whatever it is. You mean now they are meeting the residents here? Well, in the sense that there's been a significant change in the circumstances in the 10 years since the misrepresentation. Um, so that, those are the, 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 the cases where you may actually have a shot. The problem that you're going to find when we get to the cases that actually get reported at the Immigration Appeal Division is that they're the cases that have been triaged as being more serious. And exactly. so there's a triage happening at CBSA saying, we're going to go after the most egregious cases. 
So usually the ones that are going through tend to be more egregious. Yeah, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, CBSA has decided not to refer certain cases, but once they do decide to refer, I don't think the Immigration Appeal Division has allowed any of the new can files on humanitarian and compassionate. CBSA may have triaged, but once it not starts yet, going down, I think yeah. they should have in at least one case, okay. but they haven't yet. What were the circumstances of the one case that you think they should have? Uh, there was a legitimate reason for the for the family to be outside of Canada. They're taking care of an ill family member, and when they retained uh, Wa Long or Yukan to do their application, they presented the medical records and said, "Here's why we haven't been here." Is it possible to renew our PR card? And they were told, yes, our lawyers have looked at the situation and you can. And so they, they retained the company to do their application. In fact, the uh, you can went and put fraudulent stamps in the passport and claimed time in Canada that didn't exist. The couple was never told that this is what had been done and they never got their passport back. They were told that the passport was being used in a citizenship application and so couldn't be given back. They were told that they had to report the passport as stolen. As time went on and the PR card was issued and they were returning to Canada from time to time, they were told different bits of advice by New Canada's told what you have to say at the border when you arrive. They were told, don't tell the border you've been outside of Canada. The border operates on a different set of rules. At the border, if they know you've been away for two years out of five, they will take away your PR card, even though it's been legitimately issued to you. And they believed New Canada on this. They went to the internet and looked it up, and they saw that people were losing their passports, or losing their PR card at the border. Now, these people eventually, eventually, in 2014, confronted New Canada and said, we don't like what's going on. And they were told, yes, there's been fraud in your passport. That's when they were told. By this time, they had returned to Canada. They tried to make a go of it. They did establish themselves here. But at the end, they had to wear the misrepresentation committed by Newcan. And the argument by the board was, you signed the application, you took their advice to misrepresent at the border when you should have been suspicious about that information, therefore you are wearing the misrepresentation. I thought there was room there in that case for an exercise of discretion, and they weren't given it. And it's going to, you know, Peter, you're right, it's going to depend on the facts of the case. And typically what the tribunal is going to look at is how bad was the misrepresentation? Are we talking about a few days or are we talking about a few years worth of misrepresentation? Has there ever been establishment in Canada and are you established here now? Are you a good permanent resident right now? Do you have family in Canada? Do you have children in Canada? Do you have a job in Canada? Are you paying your taxes here? They'll look at all these things. What's the situation if you go home? You know, is it going to dislocate your family, etc.? So they have room to consider these things. But keep in mind that when, when Jin Wang was sentenced in court, the judge said in his sentencing, he pilloried Mr. Wang, and rightly so. He said his actions served to under, undermine Canada's immigration process with the result that the public's confidence in the process has been damaged. So this is a very, very serious serious, long-term set of misrepresentations that have damaged the integrity of our system. And people who are trapped up in that are going to have to wear that, and it's going to be a struggle for them to get out of that web and to find release from the consequences. And, and one of the problems with some of these employment frauds, and I think that one of the things that we've been, uh, is that often they're connected to tax problems as well. And so what, what um, where you've compounded, and this was the comment from the judge as well, because Mr. Uh, Mr. Wong also uh, failed to declare taxes on all of his Ill on many of his ill-gotten gains. But one of the frauds that was happening were in terms of the represent representing Canadian income to give the illusion of residency in Canada, but then only declaring taxes on the twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars that you were running through the NUCAN fraud. And so the way it would work uh, was you would pay NUCAN, uh, you know, you're getting a $3,000 check every month with your taxes deducted from the check. You pay all of the CPP and everything else plus a quote-unquote management fee on top of it. Um, when in fact your global income during that year in China would be 
uh, an order of magnitude higher, um, which you're obviously not declaring on your taxes. So you then have the additional uh, misrepresentations on the tax forms that you need to explain. So that these these uh, these frauds often tend to snowball into multiple frauds, and this is what we have. What happened with the citizenship application, for example, where it snowballs into the PR application, and then because you put these lies on the PR application, you then and so the whole thing snowballs into misrepresentations across the board um, that. Uh, um, it in some ways become more serious and more difficult to address once you get to the once you get to the IED or to the board. So yeah, and I, I look. I'll make this comment about the equitable discretion in the appeal division. I have always been a strong, strong, strong defender of that equitable jurisdiction, the ability to look at all the circumstances of the case and decide whether or not somebody should truly lose their status, whether it's for criminality or misrepresentation or residency breach. I think it's appropriate to do so, and I and I trust the judgment of the appeal division 99 times out of 100. But in these cases, in the Jin Wang cases, I think it is simplistic to determine the equitable discretion on a matter as simple as, did you sign a blank form? Did you review the form before it went in? If that's all you're looking at, if you're saying to the individual, I am going to determine that equitable jurisdiction and say that you have to wear the misrepresentation of your consultant because you didn't take care at that stage of the game, I think that's simplistic. I think it has to be a deeper examination of all the circumstances of the case. What were the circumstances that led the person to go to Jean What was the contract between them? What was the information given? What was the dialogue back and forth? And at what point would a reasonable person say, wait a minute, something's not right here? It's possible that people got trapped up in this. It may not be the majority of cases of this by any means. I don't know what the number is. Probably a great deal of his clients were were in like dirty shirts, you know. They knew it was fraud and they're gonna wear it. But those those clients that weren't part of that need to be considered carefully. And I worry that these cases are gonna get more or less railroaded by the simplistic notion of you have to wear your agent's fraud. Well, I think while that when you're looking at what the purpose of the misrepresentation provision was, um, as you said, Gordon, that part of it is um, to make this job easier to accomplish, whether that the test is not so difficult to prove for an officer who has said that there has been an error in the factual representation. Um, but I think when you look at it from a personal perspective, I think every one of us has at times submitted documentation where we've relied on the expertise of another. And I think that when you actually get down to the cases where there was a legitimate case to, to make, um, you know, the, the, the failure of that person to really challenge the expert advice that they're getting from a professional, it can be quite harsh, <laughs> depending on the circumstances. Yep, absolutely. Well, and there's also, especially when we talk about signing uh, the immigration forms, uh, I think it's important to remember that often the signatory page might be on page six of an application. And it's very possible that an individual uh, would provide completed forms and a representative could type up those forms, have that last form signed, but then make changes subsequent to the person signing them. And the person who provide the client might not have ever even known that that change was made. Now, I'm sure most you know individuals would probably send a copy of their of the application to the client. I'm not sure. It doesn't sound like Sunny Wang uh, was even advising applicants of certain applications that had been submitted. But at what point, like if you get say a copy of an application, is it still willfully blind if you don't meticulously review to make sure that there were no changes subsequent to your sending everything to the uh, representative? On this same point, though, I mean, in, in other areas, the immigration department has been migrating to those forms that need to be validated, which have a serial code on each page so that you can't um, alter them later, that the barcode is it immediately. So what happens is the form gets completed, and then it gets validated, and then it generates a barcode. And the officers don't actually have to read the print form. That data is just scanned in through the barcode. It goes directly into their system. So it's sort of, it's a fraud-proof kind of a form, or more fraud-proof. But it's never been employed in either the PR card or the citizenship context. And if anything, they, I mean, it's funny because they have the barcodes in those applications. But on the other extreme, they've got 
immigration representative portals where the exactly. clients never even sign forms. Yeah. They just sign a use of rep, which says, I designate this person to be my rep. And at that point, the client doesn't sign anything else. Even for updates about their own file, they, yeah. have, to, they have to rely on the representative. And also, at least in several of the forms that I've seen over the years, and I'm not sure about the forms now, but the solicitors probably know better than I do, but the barcode's not on the signature page. And it is now. Oh, it is. It's, it's on every page. Now. So the signature, yeah, oh, the, the, the barcode's on the signature page itself. Because when yes. they first, I remember there was a time when they were doing no, these where the barcode. it's not on the signature page, but there is a serial number on yeah. every single page, and they all need to match. So the part, the page with the barcode has a serial number. If it doesn't match the page that has the signature on it, then those other pages. But of course, the, the, the average applicant won't necessarily be live to the fact that they've signed a form and there's a mismatched barcode page. I mean, they could sign the form that the representative gives to them and don't realize that, in fact, they're going to have to replace the first six pages in order to match the barcode, if you know what I'm saying. Right, but you can't, but you can't sign the blank forms because what's, what often no. happens in these, because I can see the ease with which, if I have a client who lives in Abbotsford, and I know a lot of our clients live uh, all over the world, right? But the ease of having somebody who's coming in to do a spousal, you know, do a spousal sponsorship the first day you have them in your office, have them sign, <coughs> have them sign the signature pages on all the forms, mm -hmm. and then you can fill in the application and send it off, add a date, and and uh, I mean that's why these things get signed blank in many cases. Um, I mean I don't, I'm not saying that's a practice; it's not not something that happens in my office, and I don't think that's anything that happens in the offices of the people here. But I can see the the, the practical mm -hmm. simplicity, um, much like signing fraud. You could do it with fraudulent affidavits as well if you didn't care about keeping your bar card. Uh, that, uh, but I think that's something that the law, the law society would take very very seriously. Um, CSIC, the the um, and, and I won't. Uh, I'm not going to discuss the new. Uh, regulatory uh, council for the consultants now, but my experience with the previous regulator, regulator uh, of the uh, immigration consultants, we had made complaints about this exact kind of conduct in the past that were not even considered worth investigating. And that, that for me, would have been egregious conduct on behalf of, of, an, of, a, of a lawyer. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think misrepresentations get made all the time. Mm. All the time. By good people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, sometimes it's just a simple mistake on the form, uh, a typo, and, and you might have three sets of eyes look at that form and everybody just skips right over it, mm -hmm. but it's there. Well, and I think uh, going back to you know, something I want to mention earlier on, as you were saying, possible overreach by the uh, CBSA is that, as we mentioned, as soon as, because they went through, uh, they got a search warrant, they raided Sonny Wang's office, all of his former clients have their passports seized. And at that point, you have very meticulous officers reviewing everything. And so we've seen cases where they allege misrepresentation on, say, um, you know, you've got to go through your passport and type in every date that you left Canada. And you could get a number wrong as you're typing it. And that is material to, you know, that's material to the calculation of days. But is that a case on the same level as fake stamps? And should they, should they be as aggressively pursued? Oh, I think the question is obviously not. <laughs> Fake stamps, counterfeiting, that kind of fraud is unforgivable. Unforgivable on the part of Sonny Wong. Is it unforgivable on the part of every one of his clients? That's the question. And so, uh, so Gord, just in terms of the, what, so when somebody, one of Sunny Wong's clients comes into your, to your office, what do, what, what are you advising or, or in cases like these, I'm not talking about your specific clients, but, um, what are you telling people in terms of what the process, how does this play out or how do you see this playing out, uh, over the coming months as these hundreds of applications go through, uh, uh the immigration division, the immigration appeal division, um, where do you see this going? Uh, you know, the first advice I give to the client is not about the substance of their case. It's about the process. It's about how this is going to be dealt with down the road and where the avenues are for exercise of discretion and for final determination. You know, just because you were a client of Sunny Wong doesn't mean that you're going to lose your status, but it probably means you are going to go through some sort of process. And how long will that process be and what are the things that they're going to look at and when will the determinations be made? 
That's the first education you give the client. Then in subsequent discussions, you look at the details of their case. And you try and put yourself into the shoes of CBSA or the shoes of the Immigration Division or the shoes of the Appeal Division and foresee how this is going to go. What's the likely outcome here? What are the possibilities? And you inform your client accordingly. And in some cases, in some cases, you're going to tell your client that this is going to be a hard struggle. You have a case. We'll try and bring it to CBSA at the forefront and try and get them to exercise discretion not to proceed. If they decide to proceed, it's going to have to be a matter dealt with by the appeal division ultimately. And we'll find that out in a year and a half or two years or three years from now. And the question is, what are you going to be doing up until then? Where are you living now? Are you living here? Are you living there? you got to go back and forth. How are you going to maintain your status through that time? Other people, you look at their case, and they're looking for the magic bullet. They're looking for that magic answer that takes away their fear, the fear that they've done something that can't be cured. And the answer is, you've bid it on this one. You know, this is not going to turn out well for you. You can either go through the long struggle or you can shortcut it now, take your pick. Yeah. That's the discussions that you have in your career. Well, that's the kind of advice that that Sonny Wong wasn't giving to some of his clients. Exactly. <laughs> what you need to do to qualify is you need to come here and you actually need to resign. So those are the... Well, I think that's one of the biggest challenge with uh, that I find with these this clientele in particular is that they're precisely the clientele that are expecting a, mag- a magic bullet mm-hmm. and there, there needs to be a complete retraining in terms of saying this everything that you've been taught by your previous consultant I want you to forget because we need to, we're going to do this differently. This is this is going to work differently. You need to tell me the truth. You need to tell me what actually happened here if we're going to move forward. And sometimes that takes a while to to get there with the the cases where people have dealt with consultants who um, just say, you know, I'll make up I'll make up a story for you, right? And we see it in all of our cases, right? Whether it's refugee cases, whether it's these cases, is that if they dealt with fraudulent people in the past. Um, it's not just, you're not starting from scratch, you're actually starting by, with a lot of undoing uh, um, poor, you know, uh, problematic behavior from, or, or a problematic understanding of how to engage with the immigration system. And I think, as you said, that our area of the law is quite unique in that if we don't know all of the skeletons in the closet of the client, we really are impeded in our ability to assist. So that is, I'm not sure that it's the same way in every area as well, but I think as a cautionary tale for for um, for those in the public as well, it's it's just about the fact that, um, that it's not just about the duty of candor, it's also the duty to, if you're delegating their responsibility to a representative, there needs to be a high level of, of diligence because they will wear any error that that representative makes on their behalf. So it is, it's a, the, the immigration department push, puts a very strong onus on the applicant to know, to know the law, to understand what's happening to them. And I think because of the complexity in immigration, that's, that's, a, that's a tall tale. I thought they're going to have to understand the law. It's complex. But um, the consequences of not doing so are... Extreme. And there are a lot of myths around uh, the area, like the three myths that I come across more often, especially with this clientele, is uh, a a lot simply say that everyone will believe them if they say I didn't know. A fair number seem to also think, and maybe this has been your experience in talking with them as well, that because they own a house or more in Canada, that that automatically means that they'll be allowed to stay. And the third is if they have a Canadian kid, uh, that that, and this one's a little more understandable, but it is not the case that that automatically also means that any misrepresentations will be forgiven. So is there anything else you think people need to know about these cases, uh, Gord? Or you I think we've had a good, healthy discussion about them. And we, we definitely appreciate you having you here. So thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I'm sure that we're going to be uh, seeing a lot more decisions in this area coming out in the coming uh, months or years as they as these things progress through the various levels of uh, the tribunal and uh, eventually the courts. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Borderlines podcast. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
please do leave us a review. It's, it does help others to find the podcast. Thank you very much to Robin Bayer and Funk in the Trunk for our music and to our sound tech, Macaulay Higginson.